All right, so uh, as Rob said, my name's Zach. I'm one of the staff members here at H2OCNC. Um, and honestly, one of the best things about being on staff is the breaks that you get. Uh, since, you know, we're a college church, uh, once campus service ended on the 8th, we kind of didn't have anything to do. Uh, so it was a blessing to be able to get to go home and spend time with family. I don't know how many, or how many of you had the opportunity to do so. Um, but it was really cool just to go home and get to see family that I hadn't seen since the beginning of the semester. Uh, and one of the things that we do on my dad's side of the family is a gift exchange every year. And for the longest time, I was never really involved in this. I was always considered too young. Um, and this year, my aunt sent out the email. I'm like, yep, definitely want to be involved. I'm old enough now. I can spend 50, 60 bucks on a present uh, and be a part of this for the first time. Um, and it was weird growing up as a kid. It's like you always look forward to opening like 10 presents and just like getting all these toys and whatnot. Um, and this year, like my uncle got me one present and inside was a $50 Kroger gift card, and it was honestly the best gift I could have gotten. Um, there's, I can do everything at Kroger. Uh, you can get gas, groceries, whatnot. Um, and I was just super excited to receive this gift. And this whole gift thing is what a lot of Christmas has turned out to be. It's about this giving, receiving, this, this um, exchanging of gifts between one another. Um, and then you look at the Christian community all the time, and it's like, well, what's Christmas truly about? And, it's always like, oh, Christmas is actually about Jesus. And it just raises the question in my mind, it's like, why, why Christ? Like, why are we worshiping, why do we stop everything for a month, basically, and worship a baby who was born? It's like, what is so important about him? Why was he necessary? Like, why are we stopping our lives for this person? Um, and so that's really what I want to dig into today. Uh, so before we do that, I'm just going to pray and then dive into Romans. Um, so God, we... We just thank you for the opportunity to be here. Um, and just to publicly sit here and just learn about you, understand you more, God, and just worship you. God, I pray that anything that you want to be said today will be said, that my words will not be my own, but yours, um, and that uh, hearts will just be soft and open to receiving what you have prepared. Um, God, I pray just for the students that are still traveling back, that are still at home, that you just provide them with safety uh, on their way home. Um, and that you'll simply use this message, that you'll use this church, this community, uh, to impact not only the campus and not only the city, but the world. Um, so God, we say this all in your name. Amen. Uh, and so, like I said, we're going to be in Romans today. And I want to really focus on Romans 8.1 specifically. Um, but I want to kind of give a background for the book of Romans and the church of Rome at the time in general. Um, and so Romans is one of Paul's epistles and basically just a letter to the church uh, in Rome, to all the churches in Rome. Um, and it's a unique epistle. It's not like Corinthians, per se. Like, the book of Corinthians would be like, if I was up here on a phone call uh, talking to somebody that you couldn't hear, like, they would be asking me questions that I would be responding to them. And the only side of the conversation you could hear would be me. And so that's what we see in the books, uh, like, First and Second Corinthians and some of the other ones where Paul's addressing specific issues, and you only hear his response. Uh, Romans is just a general epistle, basically over the doctrine of salvation. Um, that's written to all the Christians who are living in Rome. And so it's formatted very differently than a couple other epistles. Um, and it reads very differently as well. And it's the church in Rome at the time, Rome was kind of a culture pot of a city. Um, for, dating back to about the 700 BCs, um, when the Assyrians conquered the north, you had Babylon, you had Persia, uh, you had Alexander the Great and the Greeks. You had a brief time where Israel saw their independence again. Uh, the Maccabean revolt, revolt, and then Rome conquered everything. Um, you had Nero with the fires in AD 64. 
and this city, these people had just seen nothing but war for years, basically. Um, and so you had Jews who had been enslaved by Rome in the city. Um, and the city had roughly uh, one million people in it. And there was about 40 to 50,000 Jews. And so picture a city of one million. Cincinnati has 1.5 million um, in a 10 square mile radius, okay? So comparable, um, there should be a map of Cincinnati up here. Uh, maybe. Okay, regardless, um, if you take the greater Cincinnati region, okay, so the 275 outer belt roughly is 1.5 million people um, living in that. And 1.5 million to 1 million, just imagine a third of those people don't exist. Sorry, whichever third you fall on. Um, and you shrink all that population down into a region that's basically between St. Bernard and the river. Um, and maybe if the graphic shows up, that's fine. Um, but you basically put all those people in a very confined area, and you have, the church, you have the Roman authority there, and you have the people in the Church of Rome that are trying to live out their lives as well. And so it's just a huge culture pot of people trying to do what they think is best. Um, and so this is the environment that Paul is writing to in this epistle. Okay? And so in Romans 8.1, um, it says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? Um, and I really want to start with the therefore. Um, so what Paul is saying here is a logical argument. Um, he's basing a logical argument based off what he's already come to conclusion to. It would be like me saying, okay, The Last Jedi was a bad movie. Therefore, my expectations for Rise of Skywalker were not very high. Um, and I, my expectations are still probably higher than they were met. Um, and I could stand up here and rant about Star Wars, um, but likely with that comment being said, some of you have the question of, well, what about The Last Jedi did you not like that led you to come to that conclusion? Um, it's like you don't just make conclusions off of nothing. And so I have my opinions about The Last Jedi that led me to that conclusion. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, and just like Paul, already drew conclusions from previous ideas that led him to draw the conclusion in Romans 8.1. Um, so that therefore is wrapping up basically what he said in Romans 1 through 7 at that point. Um, and we could go back all the way through Romans um, 1 and walk through the entire thing, um, but I really just want to start at Romans 6, like 6 and 7, and give like a brief summary of like, what is Paul coming to here? Like, why is he drawing this conclusion? What conclusion did he draw? Um, and a lot of Romans 6 can be summed up in Romans 6.14. Uh, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Maybe, okay. <laughs> um, and this, I kind of pull three things out from this verse right now. Um, so the first is a test, okay? So there's a quote from Charles Spurgeon that says, If God has given to you and to me an entirely new life in Christ, how can that new life spend itself after the fashion of the old life? Shall the spiritual live as the carnal? How can you, that you are the servants of sin, but have been made free by precious blood, go back to your old slavery? Um, and it's basically what uh, Spurgeon's saying here is that if you are made with Christ, if you're now a slave to righteousness instead of a slave to sin, how can you revert back to your old self? Um, and so he's drawing a contrast here um, with all of Romans 6, basically. Um, and so for the Christian, it's a test. It's like, okay, if I profess Christ and yet my life is reflecting that of one that's a slave to sin, there's something off there. 
Um, and so the verse should be a challenge to us in that way, and Romans 6 should be. Um, it's also a promise in a lot of ways. Um, so it doesn't say that sin won't be present. It says, um, for sin shall no longer be your master or no longer have dominion over you, um, depending on your translation. Um, so it doesn't say that it won't be present, but it says it won't have dominion over us. Um, and that's something that, as Paul goes on to say, is only, that you only see through life in the Spirit, through life in Christ. It's like something, it, without Christ, basically, there's no, there's no inner transformation that results in something not having dominion over us. Um, and he's getting at this point that without Christ, you don't really have an option to be a slave to righteousness. It's like your only default is a slave to sin. Um, and then you also see in Romans 6, Paul drawing this idea of an encouragement. Um, like for hope and battle against, for the battle against sin, basically. Because like if Christ is dwelling in you, um, and you're not under law, you're under grace, and it's no, sin is no longer your master, that means you're a master of someone else. That means you're a master to God and a master to Christ, or a slave, that you're not a master to God. Uh, it means you're a slave to Christ at that point. Um, and so you see that basically Paul's laying out here, it's like you have two choices of where you can wind up, a slave to righteousness and a slave to sin. And depend, like, what is your life representing? It's like, regardless, like, one, where's your heart at in this? And two, if you're saying you're a slave to righteousness, but your life reflect, is reflecting, like, wow, that you're a slave to sin, it's like, where are you? Because there is something that's very off here from how you, you should be reflecting Christ. Um, and so Romans 6 sets up this possibility that you can either be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And Romans 7, Paul states why it's impossible possible to be a slave to righteousness on your own accord. Um, and so if you don't know what the law is, um, it's, you can, you can, it can be summed up a couple ways. Um, and so the way that I like doing it is the word, the Torah, basically, the first five books of the Bible, um, it's translated directly as law in the Greek. And so that's kind of just the word that we kept using when we switched it to English. Um, and there's 613 laws that Moses wrote down that the people of Israel were given, okay? And you see those in Leviticus, you see those in Deuteronomy, you see a couple in Exodus as far as laws um, when it comes to how to sacrifice, how to build the tabernacle. Uh, and so you see all these commands given to the people of Israel. Uh, and I think there's really two ways that you can read those books. Um, and one is as commands given to people, um, which for us, that's a little bit more difficult because they're not given, the commands are not given to us. Um, and there's also the way of, of like reading it as a story. And so you're reading the first five books of the Bible as a story of, okay, God, you're reading as a story of God giving commands to people and then how, what, does this, what is this telling us basically? It's like, why is God giving people these laws? Like, why does the law exist? Why is all this stuff here? Um, and when you start seeing, and when you look at it that way, you start to see that the law really reveals three things to us. Like, its purpose isn't, to try to, like, the, the law's purpose is clearly defined, um, and you see this in Romans 7 as Paul lays it out. Um, and so the first thing the law really does, and you see this um, in about the middle of Romans 7, is that the law reveals sin and magnifies it to us. Um, and so I'm going to use the analogy of, like, a speed limit, for instance. And so if you're driving down 71, I was driving home yesterday, speed limit was 70. I can say I was going 70, but the law... <laughs> reveals sin, and so it reveals that, hey, speed limit is 70. If you go over this, then you're in sin, basically. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not trying to argue, it's like, is speeding a sin? I'm not getting into that. It's just an easy analogy. Um, and then our sin corrupts the law. And so 
it's kind of like, okay, if there was no speed limit on the road, it's like, I don't know how fast I would go, but there wouldn't be anything to tempt me to go over that. But with the speed limit of 70, with other people going 75, 80, it's like, huh, I can keep up with them, I can do this. Like, it gives me something to do. It's like when your mom used to tell you, oh, don't, go, don't grab the cookie jar, don't put your hand in the stove. The first thing you want to do is take a cookie, put your hand in the stove. It's like being told not to do something tends to lead you to want to do it. Um, and so the law reveals your sin, and then because of our sinful nature, we corrupt the law. And so this isn't meant to say that, um, like, the, the law is not weak per se. The law is weakened by our inability to carry it out, by our uh, flesh, basically. Um, and then lastly, the law convicts us of our sin. And so with the speed limit analogy, if I get pulled over going 80 and a 70, I don't really have any ground to stand on. It's like the speed limit's cl clearly posted. The officer, um, what would it be, like caught me going 80, basically. And so the law then convicts me of what I've already done. It, it, like, it proves me guilty. But if, if there's no speed limit there, then it would be subjective. Like, everything that would happen would be subjective. Like, the speed limit would be subjective. They could pull me over saying you're going 80 and uh, whatever I determined my speed limit to be, and I could contest them on it. Um, but just like the speed limit, God gave laws to show us what is appropriate conduct, basically. Like, how to follow him and how to glorify him better. Uh, and you see with the laws of, uh, that he gave to Israel, it was oftentimes made to set them apart. Um, and so you see that there's a lot of like Canaanite uh, worship of gods, like other gods, people of other nations were worshiping. And a lot of the laws that God gave were made to say that his people were his own. They forbid them from worship of other idols or anything that even got close to worship of other idols. Um, and so it set them apart. And so when you start to see the story as this, the like the first five books of the Bible, the Torah is this, as something that was made to set them apart and something that is good um, and that was weakened by our flesh, it spins a little bit of a different light on it. Um, it's, and the reason I added the circle up here is it's kind of a vicious cycle. Um, and when I, when I was growing up, oftentimes, I spent a lot of time out at my, um, it would be my dad's dad and his stepmom, their house. And they live in the middle of nowhere. My mom calls it God's country. Because uh, you can just walk down the road and not have a car. There's just acres of woods, um, and they had four-wheelers out there. Um, and I had, I was like eight or nine years old. I had like a little 90 four-wheelers, like really small. I thought it went like 100 miles per hour, probably went 10. Um, and there was trails that we had in the woods. Uh, and I remember riding one day, and my dad was some, like, I don't know, 100 yards behind me or something, going through the woods after it rained. And I ended up getting stuck in the mud on this four-wheeler, okay? And my instinct is, I look back, see my tire stuck, just rev the engine. It's going to fix everything. Mud starts flying, and I just get sunk even deeper. So I try to get out, try to push it. I can't push it. I'm too, like, little. The bike's heavier than I am. So I get back on, rev the engine again. It might work a second time or a third. And I'm just sitting there, like, kind of helpless, stuck on my quad in the middle of the woods, like, not able to do anything. Uh, and the only way I'm eventually able to get out is when my dad comes along and gives me a push. Um, and he's the one that's able to lift me out. And so in Romans 7, this is kind of the picture that you see Paul painting here. It's that because of the law, you're just trapped in the mud spinning your wheels. There's nothing you can do. Um, and it's because that we're helpless in our own strength. Um, and the law is so good at revealing this to us. It's not like our problem isn't desire or knowledge of what right or wrong, um, but a lack of power to do what is right. Um, and that's because the law in itself gives us no power. 
It's like, the law didn't give us power. We are just completely weak in our own flesh, and we cannot push ourselves out of like, the mud, basically. Um, and one of the most confusing parts of Romans 7 is 15 through 19, and it reads, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, even I get tongue-tied. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And you see Paul in this inner dilemma here, just fighting. It's like, I have this desire to do good. I'm just completely incapable of carrying it out. Um, and up until this point, Paul refers to himself roughly 40 times in the latter half of Romans 7. Um, and it's only at the end of Romans 7 that he reflects it around and puts it back on Christ. Um, and so you see his pers perspective switch and how Christ enters the picture. Um, and when you re read Matthew, there's a verse in Matthew 5.17 that mentions that Christ came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. Um, and by fulfilling the law, if you look at these three right here, it's like he already knew what all the laws were. Okay? They were revealed to him. He knew what they were, and yet it didn't corrupt him because he wasn't weak in the flesh. Like Satan took him to the wilderness, tried to uh, get him to sin, tried to get him to turn against God, and he wouldn't do it. So the, sin, the law did not corrupt him because he was perfect. And therefore, um, it didn't convict him, it acquitted him. It's like he was going 70 to 70 mile per hour zone. The officer, if he pulls him over, has nothing to stand on. He gets acquitted because of how he fulfilled the law. Um, and it might be a little bit like, I, I took a lot of time to set this up with Romans 6 and 7, and it might be a question of like, okay, why are you wasting this much time on it? Um, and there's a quote by John Stott um, that says, he's a Christian theologian, um, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Um, which is the only reason that we, we are celebrating Christmas last week uh, with a baby being born. The only reason we celebrate Easter, the only reason that we have anything to celebrate at all is because of our own sin. It's like Christ came to the earth last week as a child. Uh, well, not last week. 2,000 years ago, we celebrated it last week um, as a child because of our own sin. That wouldn't have been necessary if we weren't sinners. Um, and so the cross is something done by us. And that kind of leads into the biggest theme that I think you see in, that honestly the whole entire Bible leads up to this, with the idea of no condemnation. Um, and by this, if you look at the Greek, um, the word no there translates as no, uh, not less, uh, not anything else. So it doesn't mean that, you know what, Christ did 90% of the work, I had to do the other 10. Doesn't mean that he did 95 or 99 or 99.999% of the work. It's like he did 100% of the work. And so it's not that you're under less condemnation, it's you're under no condemnation. Now, it's not trying to state that, oh, if you're a good enough person, if you're a moralistic person, um, then you're under no condemnation. It's like Paul just refuted that in Romans 7. He built into this. He's saying that like, you can't do this by yourself. Like You're completely helpless by yourself. Um, and Romans 2, 6 through 8 speaks to this moralistic idea as well. Um, for God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. And Paul's kind of funny here in what he does, um, because this verse both condemns those who are obviously sinful 
and those who think they can earn their way to heaven. Because um, those that are obviously sinful, they fall into the latter half. Um, for those who are self-seeking, like we'll reject the truth, there will be wrath and anger. anger. Um, and for the first half, like for the, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Okay, you want to prove that you can be good enough? Fine. <laughs> it's like, go for it. You're going to fall into the latter half. Basically, that middle part of to those who by persistence and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. No one can do that. And so Paul's just laying out here, it's like, no matter, no matter if you're a really good person or if you're a really awful person, it's like, you cannot achieve this by yourself. Um, and the last thing I want to refute with the idea of no condemnation is Christ did not come to make your life on this earth more comfortable. Um, and I think that's a very common mindset we find ourselves in, especially in like Western civilization where it's like, I'm not really struggling that much, so why would I worship a God? It's like, and why would I worship a God that can do whatever, like, yeah, why would I worship the God of the Bible, basically? Um, and he didn't come to make this life more comfortable. Uh, so you, you, I, w I did a mission trip in Africa uh, two years ago, um, and it was wild because I saw, like, more joy and just, like, more praise for God over there where they actually had nothing, and this thought that, oh, God's just going to make my life more comfortable. All I have to do is say, I believe in him, and I'll get what I want. Like, it sounds good, but it's just damning, really. Like, it doesn't do anything. It's condemning. Um, and so Christ came to give us no condemnation. That's plain and simple. Um, he didn't come to say, oh, your life will be comfortable, and I'll give you this. It's like, no condemnation. I mean, he even says, you'll be persecuted as I have been persecuted. Like, that's a, I think it's pretty cut and clear there that we are told exactly what's going to happen for following him, but we're also seeing, we see the reward as well. Um, and so I want to, like, with the idea of not being condemned with no condemnation, um, what does it mean then? Um, and so in Hebrews, I love the book of Hebrews, probably one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, is in Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. And what we see here is that, one, he willingly partook of flesh and blood. Um, so if you look at John 1, 1, which was, um, and in the beginning there was God, or in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Okay, it's like Christ existed before time began, and yet he willingly partook of flesh and blood. He willingly came down here. It wasn't something he was forced to do, he chose to, um, which speaks a lot to the character of God in himself. Um, we see that his mission, he came to deliver us. It didn't say like he came to make us comfortable or came to like do 90% of the work, for instance. He came to deliver us. Um, and I think one of Satan's biggest weapons against us is our own sin. Um, if you look at Adam and Eve, for instance, he, he didn't just like come out and directly tell them what to do. He planted an idea in their mind that just caused them to sin. It was like a smallest idea of, did God really say this? And it's like, hmm, I don't know, did he? And it's just dwelling on it. Um, and so Satan just uses like our own sin against us. Um, he deceives us, he entices us. Um, and what this Hebrews verse is saying is that Jesus' blood removes the, that weapon and acquits us. Um, and so, just like Paul was saying in the Romans verse, um, in that sin no longer has dominion over you, it's like Jesus removes Satan's greatest weapon. Okay? It might still be a temptation, but the power of Christ removes that 
as being a slave over you, and it makes you a slave to righteousness instead. Um, and lastly, that's uh, why I want to read a verse in Romans 5, 6 through 8. Um, it says, you see at just the right time when we are still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, um, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So this sums up the mission of Christ. Why did Christ come as a child? Right there, Romans 5. Um, and lastly, we see that God is a justifier. Okay, it is God who justifies us, God who will um, condemn people guilty as well. Um, so those two verses, uh, Romans 8, 33, who, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, Romans 5, 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Okay, so you see this picture setting up that, like, the idea of no condemnation isn't just something that pops up in the Bible. It's painted all throughout Scripture. It was kind of the culmination of everything in the Bible. It's like, from the very beginning with the story of Adam and Eve, you see a promise being made to mankind that, like, I will one day crush the serpent's head with my heel. Um, and this is the culmination. It's like, in order for that to happen, something had to be done with sin. Like, you were condemned in your sin, and in order for you to not be condemned, someone had to take that punishment for you. And so the entire Bible throughout the Old Testament is leading up to this. Um, if you go back to Romans 7, or like that cycle I was talking about, like, read the Old Testament. Like, you see that Israel is stuck in this cycle the entire time. It's like they tried the... What? They tried kings, and the kings failed them. They tried prophets, the prophets failed them. They tried judges, the judges failed them. Um, they tried to follow the law perfectly, and that failed them. Um, and it's just painting this picture that Paul came to in Romans 7. It's like, we can't do this by ourselves. It's like, the only thing that can do this for us is Christ. Um, and so it's just leading up to this idea that in order to not be condemned, someone had, else had to do it for you. Um, and I fall in love with John Stott, so there's another quote in here from him. Um, um, but he states that many people visualize a God who sits comfortably on a distant throne, remote, aloof, un uninterested, and indifferent to the needs of mortals, until, it may be, they can badger him into taking action on their behalf. Such a view is wholly false. The Bible reveals a God who, long before it even occurs to man to turn to him, while man is still lost in darkness and sunk in sin, takes the initiative, rises from his throne, lays aside his glory, and stoops to seek until he finds them. This is the God of the Bible that you see from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. Um, is that he is a God that takes action, he takes initiative, and he's welcoming us back into relationship with him. And so the no condemnation, like I said, is a promise given, us to, um, given to us from God. And so because Christ fulfilled the law, because he lived the perfect life, um, the Father does not condemn Jesus. So for those that are in him, he does not condemn us as well. Um, but that, I think that term, in him, can confuse people sometimes. Uh, so the latter part of this verse says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, and it kind of reads as a clause at the end of the verse. And so A is true if B is met. Okay, So therefore, there is now no condemnation, clause A, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, and the terms in Christ, in the Lord, in him, occur roughly 164 times throughout Pauline epistles. And so it's a common theme that you see. Um, and we've kind of put a blanket term over this today that's just the Christian term. 
Um, and the Christian term is just referred to as like, oh, I go to church, I'm a Christian. Um, if I do anything, I read my Bible once a year, I'm a Christian. If I do this and this and this, if I'm a good person, I'm a Christian. Um, and it's just kind of been used as a blanket term to define people that try to live as a moralistic code. Um, but what really defines a Christian is this idea of being in Christ. It's like a true Christian is defined by Christ and not what they can do. Um, and it's not, it doesn't mean like inside, like tools inside of a toolbox. They're inside the toolbox, but what it refers to more so is a part of. And so like a branch is to a tree. Um, and what the term in Christ means is that you're completely and entirely covered by his blood. Um, and there's a couple markers that I see of like, what distinguishes somebody that's in Christ from somebody else, basically. Um, and one of them is personal fulfillment. Um, and I know Ben Howard used this analogy a while ago in one of his sermons. Um, but if you're an engineer, you know like how you build arches. At the very center of the arch, there is a stone that holds the entire thing into place. Um, and that stone is something that a lot of people try to fill with sex relationships, um, wells that we talk about at the beginning of the year, like a well of achievement. And they try to put something in there. They try to put it in there with like marriage or like you see, if you see people getting married because of kids oftentimes, like that, the kids are put in there. And once the kids leave, like that marriage will fall apart. Um, and so people are putting stuff in there that life is not, life is not meant to be built around. Um, and so when it comes to personal fulfillment, it's like once Christ is in there, it's like he is the one who fulfills you. Jesus is the bread of life. Um, and so it's not meant, like, nothing else can fulfill you, basically. He's a living water. He's a bread of life. He's the only thing that you need. Um, and another thing that we see is uh, brotherly, brotherly unity. Um, and this might not be as wild of a thought today as it was in the early days of the church. Um, if you, so like, if you're in Rome at the time that Paul's writing this epistle, okay, then you're in this culture pot, like, like I was saying, you might have been a slave. It's like women really didn't have any rights. And so when Paul says, like, men, women, slaves, masters are all equal under Christ, like, that was a contradicting statement to everything their culture said. Okay? Women didn't have rights. Slaves were, I mean, if you look at the South in the 1600s of the United States, um, it's like, go tell a slave master that his slave has the same right as, right as him. It's like, that's not going to go over well. And this is kind of the culture that this is being told to at the time. And so it's a radical thought. Um, and yeah, this is what the ability of Christ can do. It's calling people together in a unity as to something that's much bigger than they are. Um, and the last thing that you really see is this radical transformation. Um, and there's a, I mean, you can look at C.S. Lewis as an example, who was a profound atheist and ended up being led to Christ by Tolkien. Um, through just conversations with each other. Uh, you can look at the life of the person who's writing this epistle, um, who was persecuting Jews, okay? Or he was persecu persecuting Christians. He was a Jew um, for the belief in Christ, okay? He's, people were terrified of him. And as he's on the road to Damascus, uh, you see this in Acts 9, that <laughs> Christ appears to him, blinds him, and tells him, continue going to Damascus. You'll meet a guy um, named Ananias, uh, Ananias, uh, there, who will tell you what to do, basically. And Paul's just kind of left, or Saul at the time, was just kind of left like, what the heck just happened? He's blinded, trying to wander on the road to Damascus. Um, he was going there to persecute Christians, and he ends up being completely set free. Um, and so this is one of the most radical transformations that I think you can see, and I think it's honestly a testament to the power of Christ, um, is that no one else would change that way without God. 
um, is that you see a man who goes from persecuting Christians to one of the founding fathers of the entire faith. Um, and what I'm not trying to say is like not everybody is going to go through that dramatic of a transformation. I really hope some of you weren't persecuting Christians um, before this, um, but who knows? Um, but what it is saying is that that radical transformation that's possible through the power of Christ, and not only that, um, but it is only through the power of Christ that that is possible. Um, and uh, it's kind of this idea of a new creation. And so 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new, has, the, the new is here. This new heart, new creation that the ancient Israelites are looking forward to. Uh, you see in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, like uh, these dudes who were in the um, exile during Babylon um, and talking about the, eventually the new heart you'll be given, the new creation that you'll be given. Um, and Paul even mentioned this in Romans 5. And so in Romans 5, if you look in the middle of it, he's talking about Adam. And he mentions, like, just as everyone came into sin and died through Adam, through the first man, you have now been set free through Christ. And so death came in through Adam, life has come in through Christ. And you see how, this, how, the, how Paul kind of connects the entire Bible there. It's like the cycle repeats itself until Christ puts an end to it and sets a new life into, into motion. Um, and it's not, that's not saying that everything is complete yet. There's a, like, already but not yet. So, like, Christ's kingdom has already partially come. It's like we see revitalization in ourselves, but we're not fully in unity, unity with him yet until he fully restored his kingdom here on earth. And so we, if you're looking at this entire verse, um, there's a flip side to it as well. And so it's obviously like, yeah, great, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but it also means the exact opposite. For those who are not in Christ, there is still condemnation. Um, and really what this should be is a call to action um, for, in one of two ways. And so if you aren't in him, that means that you're still under condemnation. It should be a call to action to come to him and like, basically get on your knees and pray for like, this to be removed, for Christ to take everything, to stop turning your wheels in the mud and trying to do everything that you think is necessary to earn your way to salvation and earn your way to heaven and instead accept the only person who has already done what is necessary. And it should be a call to action as well if you aren't in him, if you are already in him. Um, and this is, if you pull in Romans 6 and 7 again, it's like, what are you a slave to? It's like, if you're professing that you're in Christ, if you are in Christ, and yet you're a slave to sin, you're a slave to pornography or something else that's drawing you away, it's like, where's your heart in this? Um, if you're still trying to live this righteous life, if you're saying, if you're a slave to righteousness, and yet a part of you is still like, well, Christ has only done 95% of it. I have to do this. I have to earn my way to heaven. Um, and it's like, part of the battles that I fight when like, standing up here to speak is like, not doing it for performance-based things. It's like, not doing it to earn like, accolades, for instance, or like, doing it like, oh, like, I want to prove I'm a good speaker or prove this. And it's like, no. Like, that's not taking for account that Christ has already done everything. And it's just getting up here to share what Christ has already done. Um, and so a lot of it's come down to this heart check that Paul refers to oftentimes. Um, and really, in either situation, the only thing that you can do um, is just get on your knees and pray. Um, and so I'm going to pray, and the band can come back up. So, God, um, I just thank you for this time. I just thank you that, for this opportunity to just like prepare this and give your word. Um, God, I pray just for the hearts here again that... 
whatever you wanted to be said, uh, whatever you want them to hear or just be heard, that you are the one that satisfies them, that they don't look to anything else to satisfy them. Um, and God, just like, they can take this and it can be a call of action to go share your word with those that are still under the condemnation. Um, because this is the greatest message ever told, God. This is the only thing that matters. And God, I pray that it can be just <laughs> revitalized in their hearts, that you can just set their hearts on fire to share your word, to bless others, um, and to just be your hands and feet on this earth. So God, we thank you for your... We thank you for everything that you've done for us. We thank you for coming as a child um, with this ultimate mission of dying on a cross and setting us free. Um, God, and we just thank you for the new life you've given us. Amen.